CD5 From high in the library roof, home of owls and bats and other things, there was a clink of chain and the sound of glass being broken as respectfully as possible. They don't look very worried, said Nigel, slightly affronted. How can I put this, said Rincewind, when they come to write the list of great battle cries of the world, Erm, excuse me, won't be one of them. He stepped to one side. I'm not with him, he said earnestly to a grinning guard. I just met him somewhere, in a pit. He gave a little laugh. <laughs> this sort of thing happens to me all the time, he said. The guards stared through him. Um, he said. OK, he said. He sidled back to Nigel. Are you any good with that sword? Without taking his eyes off the guards, Nigel fumbled in his pack and handed Rincewind the book. I've read the whole of chapter three, he said. It's got illustrations. Rincewind turned over the crumpled pages. The book had been used so hard you could have shuffled it. But what was probably once the front cover showed a rather poor woodcut of a muscular man. He had arms like two bags full of footballs, and he was standing knee-deep in languorous women and slaughtered victims with a smug expression on his face. About him was the legend, In a juster seven days, I willy make you a barbarian hero. Below it, in slightly smaller type, was the name Cohen the Barbarian. Rincewind rather doubted it. He had met Cohen, and while he could read after a fashion, the old boy had never really mastered the pen and still signed his name with an X, which he usually spelled wrong. On the other hand, he gravitated rapidly to anything with money in it. Rincewind looked again at the illustration, and then at Nigel. Seven days? Well, I'm a slow reader. Ah, said Rincewind. And I didn't bother with chapter six because I promised my mother I'd stick with just the looting and pillaging until I find the right girl. And this book teaches you how to be a hero? Oh, yes, it's very good. Nigel gave him a worried glance. That's all right, innit? Cost a lot of money. Well, er, uh, I suppose you'd better get on with it, then. Nigel squared his, for want of a better word, shoulders and waved his sword again. You four had better just jolly well watch out, he said. Or, hold on a minute. He took the book from Rincewind and riffled through the pages until he found what he was looking for and continued. Yes, or the chill winds of fate will blow through your bleached skeletons. The legions of hell will drown your living soul in acid. There. How would you like them, excuse me a moment, apples? There was a metallic chord as four men drew their swords in perfect harmony. Nigel's sword became a blur. It made a complicated figure eight in the air in front of him, spun over his arm, flicked from hand to hand behind his back, seemed to orbit his chest twice and leapt like a salmon. One or two of the harem ladies broke into spontaneous applause. Even the guards looked impressed. That's a triple orc thrust with extra flip, said Nigel proudly. I broke a lot of mirrors learning that. Oh, look, they're stopping. They've never seen anything like it, I imagine, said Rincewind weakly, judging the distance to the doorway. I should think not, especially the last bit where it's stuck in the ceiling. Nigel looked upwards. Funny, he said. It always did that at home, too. I wonder what I'm doing wrong. Search me. Gosh, I'm sorry, said Nigel, as the guards seemed to realise that the entertainment was over and closed in for the kill. Don't blame yourself, said Rincewind, as Nigel reached up and tried unsuccessfully to free the blade. Thank you. I'll do it for you. Rincewind considered his next step. In fact, he considered several steps, but the door was too far away, and anyway, by the sound of it, things were not a lot healthier out there. There was only one thing for it. He'd have to try magic. He raised his hand and two of the men fell over. He raised his other hand and the other two fell over. Just as he was beginning to wonder about this, Canina stepped daintily over the prone bodies, idly rubbing the sides of her hands. I thought you'd never turn up, she said. Who's your friend? As has already been indicated, the luggage seldom shows any sign of emotion or at least any emotion less extreme than blind rage and hatred, and therefore it is hard to gauge its feelings when it woke up a few miles outside Al-Khali on its lid in a dried-up wadi with its legs in the air. Even a few minutes after dawn, the air was like the breath of a furnace. After a certain amount of rocking, the luggage managed to get most of its feet pointing the right way and stood doing a complicated slow-motion jig to keep as few of them on the burning sand as possible. It wasn't lost. It always knew exactly where it was. It was always here. 
It was just that everywhere else seemed to have been temporarily mislaid. After some deliberation, the luggage turned and walked away, very slowly, into a boulder. It backed away and sat down, rather puzzled. It felt as though it had been stuffed with hot feathers, and it was dimly aware of the benefits of shade and a nice cool drink. After a few false starts, it walked to the top of a nearby dune, which gave it an unrivalled view of hundreds of other dunes. Deep in its heartwood, the luggage was troubled. It had been spurned. It had been told to go away. It had been rejected. It had also drunk enough orac to poison a small country. If there is one thing a travel accessory needs more than anything else, it is someone to belong to. The luggage set off unsteadily across the scorching sand, full of hope. I don't think we've got time for introductions, said Rincewind, as a distant part of the palace collapsed with a thump that vibrated the floor. It's time we were... He realised he was talking to himself. Nigel let go of the sword. Canina stepped forward. Oh, no, said Rincewind, but it was far too late. The world had suddenly separated into two parts. The bit which contained Nigel and Canina and the bit which contained everything else. The air between them crackled. Probably, in their half, a distant orchestra was playing, bluebirds were tweeting, little pink clouds were barrelling through the sky, and all other things that happen at times like this. When that sort of thing is going on, mere collapsing palaces in the next world don't stand a chance. Look, perhaps we can just get the introductions over with, said Rincewind desperately. Nigel? Nigel the Destroyer? said Nigel dreamily. All right, Nigel the Destroyer, said Rincewind, and added, Son of Harbut the... Mighty, said Nigel. Rincewind gaped a bit, and then shrugged. Well, whoever, he conceded. Anyway, this is Canina, which is rather a coincidence, because you'll be interested to know that her father was... Canina, without turning her gaze, had extended a hand and held Rincewind's face in a gentle grip, which with only a slight increase in finger pressure could have turned his head into a bowling ball. Although I could be mistaken, he added, when she took her hand away. Who knows? Who cares? What does it matter? They didn't take any notice. I'll just go and see if I can find the hat then, shall I? he said. Good idea, murmured Canina. I expect I shall get murdered, but I don't mind, said Rincewind. Jolly good, said Nigel. I don't expect anyone will even notice I'm gone, said Rincewind. Fine, fine, said Canina. I shall be chopped into small pieces, I expect, said Rincewind, walking towards the door at the speed of a dying snail. Canina blinked. What hat, she said. And then, oh, that hat. I suppose there's no possible chance that you two might be of some assistance, Rincewind ventured. Somewhere inside Canina and Nigel's private world, the bluebirds went to roost, the little pink clouds drifted away, and the orchestra packed up and sneaked off to do a private gig at a nightclub somewhere. A bit of reality reasserted itself. Canina dragged her admiring gaze away from Nigel's rapt face and turned it onto Rincewind where it grew slightly cooler. She sidled across the floor and grabbed the wizard by the arm. Look, she said, you won't tell him who I really am, will you? Only boys get funny ideas and... Well, anyway, if you do, I will personally break all your... I'll be far too busy, said Rincewind. What with you helping me get the hat and everything? Not that I can imagine what you see in him, he added haughtily. He's nice. I don't seem to meet many nice people. Yes, well, he's looking at us. So what? You're not frightened of him, are you? Suppose he talks to me. Rincewind looked blank. Not for the first time in his life he felt that there were whole areas of human experience that had passed him by, if areas could pass by people. Maybe he had passed them by, he shrugged. Why did you let them take you off to the harem without a fight? He said. I've always wanted to know what went on in one. There was a pause. Well, said Rincewind. Well, we all sat around and then after a bit the serif came in. And then he asked me over and he said that since I was new it would be my turn and then you'll never guess what he wanted me to do. The girl said it's the only thing he's interested in. Um, uh, are you all right? Fine, fine, Rincewind muttered. Your face has gone all shiny. No, no, I'm fine, fine. He asked me to tell him a story. What about, said Rincewind suspiciously. The other girls said he prefers something with rabbits in it. Ah, oh, 
Rabbits. Small, fluffy white ones. But the only stories I know are the ones father taught me when I was little, and I don't think they're really suitable. Not many rabbits? Lots of arms and legs being chopped off, said Canina, and sighed. That's why you mustn't tell him about me, you see. I'm just not cut out for a normal life. Telling stories in a harem isn't bloody normal, said Rincewind. It'll never catch on. Ooh, he's looking at us again. Canina grabbed Rincewind's arm. He shook her off. Oh, good grief, he said, and hurried across the room to Nigel, who grabbed his other arm. You haven't been telling her about me, have you? he demanded. I'll never live it down if you've told her that I'm only just learning how... No, no, no. She wants you to help us. It's a sort of quest. Nigel's eyes gleamed. You mean a gears? he said. Pardon? It's in the book. To be a proper hero, it says you've got to labour under a gears. Rincewind's forehead wrinkled. Is it a sort of bird? I think it's more of a sort of obligation or something, said Nigel, but without much certainty. Sounds more like a kind of bird to me, said Rincewind. I'm sure I read it in a bestiary once. Large, couldn't fly, big pink legs it had. His face went blank as his ears digested what he'd just heard his lips say. Five seconds later, they were out of the room, leaving behind four prone guards and the harem ladies themselves, who settled down for a bit of storytelling. The desert rimwoods of Al-Khali is bisected by the river Tsort, famed in myth and lies, which insinuates its way through the brown landscapes like a long, damp, descriptive passage, punctuated with sandbanks. And every sandbank is covered with sun-baked logs, and most of the logs are the kind of logs that have teeth, and most of the logs opened one lazy eye at the distant sounds of splashing from upstream, and suddenly most of the logs had legs. A dozen scaly bodies slipped into the turbid waters, which rolled over them again. The dark waters were unruffled except for a few inconsequential V-shaped ripples. The luggage paddled gently down the stream. The water was making it feel a little better. It spun gently in the weak current, the focus of several mysterious little swirls that sped across the surface of the water. The ripples converged. The luggage jerked, its lid flew open. It shot under the surface with a brief despairing creak. The chocolate-coloured waters of the sort rolled back again. They were getting good at it. And the Tower of Sorcery loomed over Al-Khali like a vast and beautiful fungus, the kind that appear in books with little skull and crossbone symbols beside them. The Seraph's Guard had fought back, but there were now quite a lot of bewildered frogs and newts around the base of the tower, and they were the fortunate ones. They still had arms and legs of a sort, and most of their essential organs were still on the inside. The city was under the rule of sorcery. Martial law. Some of the buildings nearest the base of the tower were already turning into the bright white marble that the wizards obviously preferred. The trio stared out through a hole in the palace walls. Very impressive, said Canina critically. Your wizards are more powerful than I thought. Not my wizards, said Rincewind. I don't know whose wizards they are. I don't like it. All the wizards I knew couldn't stick one brick on another. We don't like the idea of wizards ruling everybody, said Nigel. Of course, as a hero, I am philosophically against the whole idea of wizardry in any case. The time will come when... His eyes glazed slightly as if he was trying to remember something he'd seen somewhere. The time will come when all wizardry has gone from the face of the world and the sons of, um, of... Anyway, we can all be a bit more practical about things, he added lamely. Read it in a book, did you? said Rincewind sourly. Any gears in it? He's got a point, said Canina. I've nothing against wizards, but it's not as if they do much good. They're just a bit of decoration, really, up to now. Rincewind pulled off his hat. It was battered, stained and covered with rock dust. Bits of it had been sheared off, the point was dented and the star was shedding sequins like pollen. But the word wizard was still just readable under the grime. See this? he demanded, red in the face. Do you see it? Do you? What does it tell you? That you can't spell said Nigel. What? No, it says I'm a wizard, that's what. Twenty years behind the staff and proud of it. I've done my time, I have. I've passed, well, I've sat dozens of exams. If all the spells I've read were piled on top of one another, they'd, it'd, you'd, you'd have a lot of spells. Yes, but, Canina began. Yes? You're not actually very good at them, are you? 
Rincewind glared at her. He tried to think of what to say next, and a small receptor area opened in his mind at the same time as an inspiration particle, its path bent and skewed by a trillion random events, screamed down through the atmosphere and burst silently just at the right spot. Talent just defines what you do, he said. It doesn't define what you are. Deep down, I mean. When you know what you are, you can do anything. He thought a bit more and added, that's what makes sorcerers so powerful. The important thing is to know what you really are. There was a pause full of philosophy. Rincewind, said Kanina kindly. Hmm? said Rincewind, who was still wondering how the words got into his head. You really are an idiot. Do you know that? You will all stand very still. Abrim the vizier stepped out of a ruined archway. He was wearing the arch-chancellor's hat. The desert fried under the flame of the sun. Nothing moved except the shimmering air, hot as a stolen volcano, dry as a skull. A basilisk lay panting in the baking shade of a rock, dribbling corrosive yellow slime. For the last five minutes, its ears had been detecting the faint thumb of hundreds of little legs moving unsteadily over the dunes, which seemed to indicate that dinner was on the way. It blinked its legendary eyes and uncoiled twenty feet of hungry body, winding out on and on into the sand like fluid death. The luggage staggered to a halt and raised its lid threateningly. The basilisk hissed, but a little uncertainly because it had never seen a walking box before and certainly never one with lots of alligator teeth stuck in its lid. There were also scraps of leathery hide adhering to it as though it had been involved in a fight in a handbag factory and in a way that the basilisk wouldn't have been able to describe even if it could talk. It appeared to be glaring. Right, the reptile thought, if that's the way you want to play it. It turned on the luggage a stare like a diamond drill a stare that nipped in via the starey's eyeballs and flayed the brain from the inside, a stare that tore the frail net curtains on the windows of the soul, a stare that... The basilisk realised something was very wrong. An entirely new and unwelcome sensation started to arise just behind its saucer-shaped eyes. It started small, like the little itch in those few square inches of back that no amount of writhing will allow you to scratch, and grew until it became a second red-hot internal sun. The basilisk was feeling a terrible, overpowering and irresistible urge to blink. It did something incredibly unwise. It blinked. He is talking through his hat, said Rincewind. Eh? said Nigel, who was beginning to realise that the world of the barbarian hero wasn't the clean, simple place he had imagined in the days when the most exciting thing he had ever done was stack parsnips. The hat's talking through him, you mean, said Canina and she backed away too, as one tends to do in the presence of horror. Hey? I will not harm you. You have been of some service, said Abrim, stepping forwards with his hands out. But you are right. He thought he could gain power through wearing me. Of course, it is the other way round. An astonishingly devious and clever mind. So you tried his head on for size, said Rincewind. He shuddered. He'd worn the hat. Obviously he didn't have the right kind of mind. Abrim did have the right kind of mind, and now his eyes were grey and colourless, his skin was pale, and he walked as though his body was hanging down from his head. Nigel had pulled out his book and was riffling feverishly through the pages. What on earth are you doing? said Canina, not taking her eyes off the ghastly figure. I'm looking up the index of wandering monsters said Nigel. Do you think it's an undead? They're awfully difficult to kill. You need garlic and... You won't find this in there, said Rincewind slowly. It's a vampire hat. Of course it might be a zombie, said Nigel, running his finger down a page. It says here you need black pepper and sea salt, but... You're supposed to fight the bloody things, not eat them, said Canina. This is a mind I can use, said the hat. Now I can fight back. I shall rally wizardry. There is room for only one magic in this world, and I embody it. Sorcery beware. Oh, no, said Rincewind under his breath. Wizardry has learned a lot in the last twenty centuries. This upstart can be beaten. 
You three will follow me. It wasn't a request. It wasn't even an order. It was a sort of forecast. The voice of the hat went straight to the hind brain without bothering to deal with the consciousness, and Rincewind's legs started to move of their own accord. The other two also jerked forwards, walking with the awkward doll-like jerking that suggested that they too were on invisible strings. Why the oh no, said Canina. I mean, oh no, on general principles I can understand, but was there any particular reason? If we get a chance, we must run, said Rincewind. Did you have anywhere in mind? It probably won't matter. We're doomed, anyway. Why? said Nigel. Well, said Rincewind, have you ever heard of the Mage Wars? There were a lot of things on the disc that owed their origin to the Mage Wars. Sapient Pearwood was one of them. The original tree was probably perfectly normal and spent its days drinking groundwater and eating sunshine in a state of blessed unawareness. And then the Magic Wars broke around it and pitchforked its genes into a state of acute perspicacity. It also left it ingrained, as it were, with a bad temper, but sapient pearwood got off lightly. Once, when the level of background magic on the disc was young and high and found every opportunity to burst on the world, wizards were all as powerful as sorcerers and built their towers on every hilltop. And if there was one thing a really powerful wizard can't stand, it is another wizard. His instinctive approach to diplomacy is to hex them till they glow, then curse them in the dark. That could only mean one thing. All right, two things. Well, three things. All-out, thaumatological war. And there were, of course, no alliances, no sides, no deals, no mercy, no seeth. The skies twisted, the seas boiled. The scream and whiz of fireballs turned the night into day. But that was all right, because the ensuing clouds of black smoke turned the day into night. The landscape rose and fell like a honeymoon duvet, and the very fabric of space itself was tied in multidimensional knots and bashed on a flat stone down by the river of time. For example, a popular spell at the time was Pelepel's Temporal Compressor, which on one occasion resulted in a race of giant reptiles being created, evolving, spreading, flourishing, and then being destroyed in the space of about five minutes, leaving only its bones in the earth to mislead forthcoming generations completely. Trees swam, fishes walked, Mountains strolled down to the shops for a packet of cigarettes, and the mutability of existence was such that the first thing any cautious person would do when they woke up in the morning was count their arms and legs. That was, in fact, the problem. All the wizards were pretty evenly matched, and in any case lived in high towers well protected with spells, which meant that most magical weapons rebounded and landed on the common people who were trying to scratch an honest living from what was temporarily the soil and lead ordinary, decent, but rather short, lives. But still the fighting raged, battering the very structure of the universe of order, weakening the walls of reality, and threatening to topple the whole rickety edifice of time and space into the darkness of the dungeon dimensions. One story said that the gods stepped in, but the gods don't usually take a hand in human affairs unless it amuses them. Another one, and this was the one that the wizards themselves told and wrote down in their books, was that the wizards themselves got together and settled their differences amicably for the good of mankind and this was generally accepted as the true account, despite being as internally likely as a lead lifebelt. The truth isn't easily pinned to a page. In the bathtub of history, the truth is harder to hold than the soap, and much more difficult to find. What happened then? said Canina. It doesn't matter, said Rincewind mournfully. It's going to start all over again. I can feel it. I've got this instinct. There's too much magic flowing into the world. There's going to be a horrible war. It's all going to happen. The disc is too old to take it this time. Everything's been worn too thin. Doom, darkness and destruction bear down on us. The apocalypse is nigh. Death walks abroad, added Nigel, helpfully. What? snapped Rincewind, angry at being interrupted. I said, death walks abroad, said Nigel. Abroad, I don't mind, said Rincewind. They're all foreigners. It's death walking around here I'm not looking forward to. It's only a metaphor said Canina. That's all you know. I've met him. What did he look like? said Nigel. Put it like this. Yes? He didn't need a hairdresser. Now the sun was a blow-lamp nailed to the sky, and the only difference between the sand and red-hot ash was the colour. The luggage plodded erratically across the burning dunes. There were a few traces of yellow slime rapidly drying on its lid. The lonely little oblong was watched from atop of a stone pinnacle the shape and temperature of a firebrick by a chimera. 
For a description of the Chimera, we shall turn to Broomfog's famous bestiary, Anima Unnaturale. It have three leggies of an mermaid, the hair of an tortoise, the teeth of an fowl, and the wingies of an snake. Of course, I have only my wordy for it, the beast having the breath of an furnace and the temperament of an rubber balloon in a hurricane. The chimera was an extremely rare species, and this particular one wasn't about to do anything to help matters. It judged its moment carefully, kicked away with its talons, folded its leathery wings and plummeted down towards its victim. The chimera's technique was to swoop low over the prey, lightly boiling it with its fiery breath, and then turn and rend its dinner with its teeth. It managed the fire part, but then, at the point where experience told the creature it should be facing a stricken and terrified victim, found itself on the ground in the path of a scorched and furious luggage. The only thing incandescent about the luggage was its rage. It had spent several hours with a headache during which it seemed the whole world had tried to attack it. It had had enough. When it had stamped the unfortunate chimera into a greasy puddle on the sand, it paused for a moment, apparently considering its future. It was becoming clear that not belonging to anyone was a lot harder than it had thought. It had vague, comforting recollections of service and a wardrobe to call its own. It turned around very slowly, pausing frequently to open its lid. It might have been sniffing the air if it had a nose. At last, it made up its mind, if it had a mind. The hat and its wearer also strode purposefully across the rubble that had been the legendary Roxy to the foot of the Tower of Sorcery, their unwilling entourage straggling along behind them. There were doors at the foot of the tower. Unlike those of Unseen University, which were usually propped wide open, they were tightly shut. They seemed to glow. You three are privileged to be here, said the hat through Abrim's slack mouth. This is the moment when wizardry stops running. He glanced witheringly at Rincewind and starts fighting back. You will remember it for the rest of your lives. What, until lunchtime? said Rincewind weakly. Watch closely, said Abrim. He extended his hands. If we get a chance, whispered Rincewind to Nigel, we run, right? Where to? From, said Rincewind. The important word is from. I don't trust this man, said Nigel. I'm not going to judge from first impressions, but I definitely think he's up to no good. He had you thrown in a snake pit. Perhaps I should have taken the hint. The vizier started to mutter. Even Rincewind, whose few talents included a gift for languages, didn't recognise it. But it sounded the kind of language designed specifically for muttering. The words curling out like scythes at ankle height, dark and red and merciless. They made complicated swirls in the air and then drifted gently towards the doors of the tower. Where they touched the white marble, it turned black and crumbled. As the remains drifted to the ground, a wizard stepped through and looked Abrim up and down. Rincewind was used to the dressy ways of wizards, but this one was really impressive. His robe so padded and crenellated and buttressed in fantastic folds and creases that it had probably been designed by an architect. The matching hat looked like a wedding cake that had collided intimately with a Christmas tree. The actual face, peering through the small gap between the baroque collar and the filigreed fringe of the brim, was a bit of a disappointment. At some time in the past, it had thought its appearance would be improved by a thin, scruffy moustache. It had been wrong. That was our bloody door, it said. You're really going to regret this. A brim folded his arms. This seemed to infuriate the other wizard. He flung up his arms, untangled his hands from the lace on his sleeves and sent a flare screaming across the gap. It struck Abrim in the chest and rebounded in the gout of incandescence. But when the blue afterimages allowed Rincewind to see, he saw Abrim unharmed. His opponent frantically patted out the last of the little fires in his own clothing and looked up with murder in his eyes. You don't seem to understand, he rasped. It's sorcery you're dealing with now. You can't fight sorcery. I can use sorcery, said Abrim. The wizard snarled and lofted a fireball which burst harmlessly inches from Abrim's dreadful grin. A look of acute puzzlement passed across the other one's face. He tried again, sending lines of blue-hot magic lancing straight from infinity towards Abrim's heart. Abrim waved them away. 
Your choice is simple, he said. You can join me, or you can die. It was at this point that Rincewind became aware of a regular scraping sound close to his ear. It had an unpleasant metallic ring. He half turned and felt the familiar and very uncomfortable prickly feeling of time slowing down around him. Death paused in the act of running a whetstone along the edge of his scythe and gave him a nod of acknowledgement as between one professional to another. He put a bony digit to his lips, or rather to the place where his lips would have been if he'd had lips. All wizards can see death, but they don't necessarily want to. There was a popping in Rincewind's ears, and the spectre vanished. Abrim and the rival wizard were surrounded by a corona of randomised magic, and it was evidently having no effect on Abrim. Rincewind drifted back into the land of the living just in time to see the man reach out and grab the wizard by his tasteless collar. You cannot defeat me, he said in the hat's voice. I have had two thousand years of harnessing power to my own ends. I can draw my power from your power. Yield to me, or you won't even have time to regret it. The wizard struggled and, unfortunately, let pride win over caution. Never, he said. Die, suggested Abrim. Rincewind had seen many strange things in his life, most of them with extreme reluctance, but he had never seen anyone actually killed by magic. Wizards didn't kill ordinary people because, A, they seldom noticed them, and, B, it wasn't considered sporting, and, C, besides who'd do all the cooking and growing food and things. And killing a brother wizard with magic was well-nigh impossible on account of the layers of protective spells that any cautious wizard maintained about his person at all times. Of course, wizards often killed one another by ordinary non-magical means, but this was perfectly allowable, and death by assassination was considered natural causes for a wizard. The first thing a young wizard learns at Unseen University, apart from where his peg is and which way to the lavatory, is that he must protect himself at all times. Some people think this is paranoia, but it isn't. Paranoids only think everyone is out to get them. Wizards know it. The little wizard was wearing the psychic equivalent of three feet of tempered steel, and it was being melted like butter under a blow lamp. It streamed away, vanished. If there are words to describe what happened to the wizard next, then they're imprisoned inside a wild thesaurus in the Unseen University Library. Perhaps it's best left to the imagination except that anyone able to imagine the kind of shape that Rincewind saw writhing painfully for a few seconds before it mercifully vanished must be a candidate for the famous white canvas blazer with the optional long sleeves. So perish all enemies, said Abrim. He turned his face up to the heights of the tower. I challenge, he said, and those who will not face me must follow me, according to the law. There was a long, thick pause, caused by a lot of people listening very hard. Eventually, from the top of the tower, a voice called out uncertainly, uh, Whereabouts in the law? I embody the law. There was a distant whispering, and then the same voice called out, The law is dead. Sorcery is above the law. The sentence ended in a scream because Abrim raised his left hand and sent a thin beam of green light in the precise direction of the speaker. It was at about this moment that Rincewind realised that he could move his limbs himself. The hat had temporarily lost interest in them. He glanced sideways at Kanina. In instant unspoken agreement, they each grasped one of Nigel's arms and turned and ran, and didn't stop until they'd put several walls between them and the tower. Rincewind ran, expecting something to hit him in the back of the neck, possibly the world. All three landed in the rubble and lay there panting. You needn't have done that, muttered Nigel. I was just getting ready to give him a really good seeing to. How can I ever... There was an explosion behind them, and shafts of multicoloured fire screamed overhead, striking sparks off the masonry. Then there was a sound like an enormous cork being pulled out of a small bottle, and a peal of laughter that somehow wasn't very amusing. The ground shook. What's going on? said Kanina. Magical war said Rincewind. Is that good? No. But surely you want wizardry to triumph, said Nigel. Rincewind shrugged and ducked as something unseen and big whirred overhead, making a noise like a partridge. I've never seen wizards fight, said Nigel. He started to scramble up the rubble and screamed as Kanina grabbed him by the leg. I don't think that would be a good idea, she said. Rincewind? The wizard shook his head gloomily and picked up a pebble. He tossed it up above the ruined wall, where it turned into a small blue teapot. 
It smashed when it hit the ground. The spells react with one another, he said. There's no telling what they'll do. But we're safe behind this wall, said Canina. Rincewind brightened a bit. Are we, he said. I was asking you. Oh, no, I shouldn't think so. It's just ordinary stone. The right spell and phooey. Phooey? Right. Shall we run away again? It's worth a try. They made it to another upright wall a few seconds before a randomly spitting ball of yellow fire landed where they had been lying and turned the ground into something awful. The whole area around the tower was a tornado of sparkling air. We need a plan, said Nigel. We could try running again, said Rincewind. That doesn't solve anything. Solves most things, said Rincewind. How far do we have to go to be safe, said Canina. Rincewind risked a look around the wall. Interesting philosophical question, he said. I've been a long way and I've never been safe. Canina sighed and stared at a pile of rubble nearby. She stared at it again. There was something odd there and she couldn't quite put her finger on it. I could rush at them, said Nigel vaguely. He stared yearningly at Canina's back. Wouldn't work, said Rincewind. Nothing works against magic except stronger magic. And then the only thing that beats stronger magic is even stronger magic, and the next thing you know... Fooey? suggested Nigel. It happened before, said Rincewind. Went on for thousands of years until not a... Do you know what's odd about that heap of stone? said Canina. Rincewind glanced at it. He screwed up his eyes. What, apart from the legs? he said. It took several minutes to dig the serif out. He was still clutching a wine bottle, which was almost empty, and blinked at them all in vague recognition. Powerful, he said, and then after some effort added, Stuff, this vintage. Felt, he continued, as though the place fell on me. He did, said Rincewind. Ah, that would be it then. Creosote focused on Canina after several attempts and rocked backwards. My word, he said, the young lady again. Very impressive. I say... Nigel began. Your hair, said the seraph, rocking slowly forward again, is like, is like a flock of goats that graze upon the side of Mount Gebra. Look here. Your breasts are like, uh, like... The seraph swayed sideways a little and gave a brief sorrowful glance at the empty bottle. Are like the jewelled melons in the fabled gardens of dawn. Conina's eyes widened. They are? she said. No, said the seraph, doubt about it. I know jewelled melons when I see them, as the white does in the meadows of the water margin are your thighs, which, um, excuse me, said Nigel, clearing his throat with malice aforethought. Creosote swayed in his direction. Mm. Where I come from, said Nigel stonily, we don't talk to ladies like that. Kinina sighed as Nigel shuffled protectively in front of her. It was, she reflected, absolutely true. In fact, he went on, sticking out his jaw as far as possible, which still made it appear like a dimple, I've a jolly good mind. Open to debate, said Rincewind, stepping forward. Er, uh, sir, er, uh, sire, we need to get out. Uh, I suppose you wouldn't know the way. Thousands of rooms, said the seraph, in here, you know. Not been out in years, he hiccuped. Decades, eons, never been out in fact. His face glazed over in the act of composition. The bird of time has but um, 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 a little way to walk, and lo, the bird is on its feet. It's a gears, muttered Rincewind. Creosote swayed at him. A brim does all the ruling, you see, it's terrible hard work. He's not said Rincewind, making a very good job of it just at present. And we'd sort of like to get away, said Canina, who was still turning over the phrase about the goats. And I've got this gears, said Nigel, glaring at Rincewind. Creosote patted him on the arm. That's nice, he said. Everyone should have a pet. So if you happen to know if you own any stables or anything, prompted Rincewind. Hundreds, said Creosote. I own some of the finest... Most finest horses in the world, his brow wrinkled, so they tell me. But you wouldn't happen to know where they are? Not as such, 
the seraph admitted. A random spray of magic turned the nearby wall into arsenic meringue. I think we might have been better off in the snake pit, said Rincewind, turning away. Creosote took another sorrowful glance at his empty wine bottle. I'd know where there's a magic carpet, he said. No, said Rincewind, raising his hands protectively. Absolutely not. Don't even... It belonged to my grandfather. A real magic carpet, said Nigel. Listen, said Rincewind urgently, I get vertigo just listening to tall stories. Oh, quite, the seraph burped gently. Genuine, very pretty pattern. He squinted at the bottle again and sighed. It was a lovely blue colour, he added. And you wouldn't happen to know where it is, said Canina slowly, in the manner of one creeping up very carefully to a wild animal that might take fright at any moment. In the treasury. I know the way there. I'm extremely rich, you know. Or so they tell me. He lowered his voice and tried to wink at Canina, eventually managing it with both eyes. We could sit on it, he said, breaking into a sweat. And you could tell me a story? Rincewind tried to scream through gritted teeth. His ankles were already beginning to sweat. I'm not going to ride on a magic carpet, he hissed. I'm afraid of grounds. You mean heights, said Canina, and stop being silly. I know what I mean. It's the grounds that kill you. The Battle of Al-Khali was a hammer-headed cloud in whose roiling depths weird shapes could be heard and strange sounds were seen. Occasional misses seared across the city. Where they landed, things were different. For example, a large part of the soak had turned into an impenetrable forest of giant yellow mushrooms. No one knew what effect this had on its inhabitants, although possibly they hadn't noticed. The temple of Ofla, the crocodile god, patron deity of the city, was now a rather ugly, sugary thing, constructed in five dimensions. But this was no problem, because it was being eaten by a herd of giant ants. On the other hand, not many people were left to appreciate this statement against uncontrolled civic alteration, because most of them were running for their lives. They fled across the fertile fields in a steady stream. Some had taken to boats, but this method of escape had ceased when most of the harbour area turned into a swamp in which, for no obvious reason, a couple of small pink elephants were building a nest. Down below the panic on the roads, the luggage paddled slowly up one of the reed-lined drainage ditches. A little way ahead of it, a moving wave of small alligators, rats and snapping turtles was pouring out of the water and scrambling frantically up the bank, propelled by some vague but absolutely accurate animal instinct. The luggage's lid was set in an expression of grim determination. It didn't want much out of the world except for the total extinction of every other life form, but what it needed more than anything else now was its owner. It was easy to see that the room was a treasury by its incredible emptiness. Doors hung off hooks, barred alcoves had been smashed in, lots of smashed chests lay around, and this gave Rincewind a pang of guilt, and he wondered for about two seconds where the luggage had got to. There was a respectful silence, as there always is when large sums of money have just passed away. Nigel wandered off and prodded some of the chests in a forlorn search for secret drawers, as per the instructions in Chapter 11. Conina reached down and picked up a small copper coin. How horrible, said Rincewind eventually. A treasury with no treasure in it. The seraph stood and beamed. Not to worry, he said. All your money has been stolen, said Canina. The servants, I expect, said Creosote. Very disloyal of them. Rincewind gave him an odd look. Doesn't it worry you? Not much. I never really spent anything. I've often wondered what being poor was like. You're going to get a huge opportunity to find out. Will I need training? It comes naturally, said Rincewind. You pick it up as you go along. There was a distant explosion, and part of the ceiling turned to jelly. Um, excuse me, said Nigel, this carpet. Yes, said Canina, the carpet. Creosote gave them a benevolent, slightly tipsy smile. Ah, yes, the carpet. Push the nose of the statue behind you, peach buttocks jewel of the desert dawn. Canina, blushing, performed this act of minor sacrilege on a large green statue of Ofla, the crocodile god. Nothing happened. Secret compartments assiduously failed to open. 
Oh, um, try the left hand. She gave it an experimental twist. Creosote scratched his head. Maybe it was the right hand. I should try and remember if I were you, said Kanina sharply, when that didn't work either. There aren't many bits left that I'd care to pull. What's that thing there? said Rincewind. You're really going to hear about it if it isn't the tail, said Kanina, and gave it a kick. There was a distant metallic groaning noise, like a saucepan in pain. The statue shuddered. It was followed by a few heavy clonks somewhere inside the wall, and Offler, the crocodile god, grated ponderously aside. There was a tunnel behind him. My grandfather had this built for our more interesting treasures, said Creosote. He was very... He groped for a word. Ingenious. If you think I'm setting foot in there, Rincewind began. Stand aside, said Nigel loftily. I will go first. It could be traps, said Kanina doubtfully. She shot the seraph a glance. Oh, probably. Oh, gazelle of heaven, he said. I haven't been in there since I was six. There were some slabs you shouldn't tread on, I think. Don't worry about that, said Nigel, peering into the gloom of the tunnel. I shouldn't think there's a booby trap that I couldn't spot. Had a lot of experience at this sort of thing, have you? said Rincewind, sourly. Well, I know chapter 14 off by heart. It had illustrations, said Nigel, and ducked into the shadows. They waited for several minutes in what could have been a horrified hush if it wasn't for the muffled grunts and occasional thumping noises from the tunnel. Eventually, Nigel's voice echoed back down to them from a distance. There is absolutely nothing, he said. I've tried everything. It's as steady as a rock. Everything must have seized up or something. Rincewind and Kanina exchanged glances. He doesn't know the first thing about traps, she said. When I was five, my father made me walk all the way down a passage that he'd rigged up just to teach me. He got through, didn't he? said Rincewind. There was a noise like a damp finger dragged across glass, but amplified a billion times, and the floor shook. Anyway, we haven't got a lot of choice, he added, and ducked into the tunnel. The others followed him. Many people who had got to know Rincewind had come to treat him as a sort of two-legged miner's canary. All right, but you've got the general idea. And tended to assume that if Rincewind was still upright and not actually running, then some hope remained. This is fun, said Creosote, me robbing my own treasury. If I catch myself, I can have myself flung into the snake pit. But you could throw yourself on your mercy, said Kanina, running a paranoid eye over the dusty stonework. Oh, no, I think I would have to teach me a lesson as an example to myself. There was a little click above them. A small slab slid aside and a rusty metal hook descended slowly and jerkily. Another bar creaked out of the wall and tapped Rincewind on the shoulder. As he swung around, the first hook hung a yellowing notice on his back and retracted into the roof. "'What did it do? What did it do?' screamed Rincewind, trying to read his own shoulder blaze. "'It says, kick me,' said Kanina. A section of wall slid up beside the petrified wizard. A large boot on the end of a complicated series of metal joints gave a half-hearted wobble, and then the whole thing snapped at the knee." The three of them looked at it in silence. Then Kanina said, We're dealing here with a warped brain, I can tell. Rincewind gingerly unhooked the sign and let it drop. Kanina pushed past him and stalked along the passage with an air of angry caution, and when a metal hand extended itself on a spring and waggled in a friendly fashion, she didn't shake it, but instead traced its molting wiring to a couple of corroded electrodes in a big glass jar. Your granddad was a man with a sense of humour, she said. Oh, yes, always liked a chuckle, said Creosote. Oh, good, said Kanina. She prodded gingerly at a flagstone, which to Rincewind looked no different to any of its fellows. With a sad little springy noise, a molting feathered duster wobbled out of the wall at armpit height. I think I would have quite liked to meet the old serif, she said, through gritted teeth, although not to shake him by the hand. You'd better give me a leg up here, wizard. Pardon? Kanina pointed irritably to a half-open stone doorway just ahead of them. I want to look up there, she said. You just put your hands together for me to stand on, right? How do you manage to be so useless? Being useful always gets me into trouble, muttered Rincewind, trying to ignore the warm flesh brushing against his nose. He could hear her rooting about above the door. I thought so, she said. What is it? 
fiendishly sharp spears poised to drop? No? Spiked grill ready to skewer? It's a bucket, said Canina flatly, giving it a push. What, of scalding poisonous whitewash? Just a load of old, dried-up whitewash. Canina jumped down. That's grandfather for you, said Creosote. Never a dull moment. Well, I've had just about enough, said Canina firmly, and pointed to the far end of the tunnel. Come on, you two. They were about three feet from the far end when Rincewind felt a movement in the air above him. Canina struck him in the small of the back, shoving him forward into the room beyond. He rolled when he hit the floor, and something nicked his foot at the same time as a loud thump deafened him. The entire roof, a huge block of stone four feet thick, had dropped into the tunnel. Rincewind crawled forward through the dust clouds, and with a trembling finger traced the lettering on the side of the slab. Laugh this one off, he said. He sat back. That's grandad, said Creosote happily. Always a... He intercepted Canina's gaze, which had the force of a lead pipe, and wisely shut up. Nigel emerged from the clouds, coughing. I say, what happened? he said. Is everyone all right? It didn't do that when I went through. Rincewind sought for a reply, and couldn't find anything better than... Didn't it? Light filtered into the deep room from tiny barred windows up near the roof. There was no way out except by walking through the several hundred tons of stone that blocked the tunnel, or to put it another way, which was the way Rincewind put it, they were undoubtedly trapped. He relaxed a bit. At least there was no mistaking the magic carpet. It lay rolled up on a raised slab in the middle of the room. Next to it was a small, sleek oil lamp, and, Rincewind craned to see, a small gold ring. He groaned. A faint octarine corona hung over all three items, indicating that they were magical. When Canina unrolled the carpet, a number of small objects tumbled to the floor, including a brass herring, a wooden ear, a few large square sequins, and a lead box with a preserved soap bubble in it. "'What on earth are they?' said Nigel. "'Well,' said Rincewind, "'before they tried to eat that carpet, they were probably moths.' "'Gosh!' That's what you people never understand, said Rincewind wearily. You think magic is just something you can pick up and use like a, a parsnip, said Nigel. Wine bottle, said the seraph. Something like that, said Rincewind cautiously, but rallied somewhat and went on. But the truth is, is not like that. More like a wine bottle, said the seraph, hopefully. Magic uses people, said Rincewind hurriedly. It affects you as much as you affect it, sort of thing. You can't mess around with magical things without it affecting you. I just thought I'd better warn you. Like a wine bottle, said Creosote, that... that drinks you back, said Rincewind. So you can put down that lamp and ring for a start, and for goodness sake, don't rub anything. My grandfather built up the family fortunes with them, said Creosote wistfully. His wicked uncle locked him in a cave, you know. He had to set himself up with what came to hand. He had nothing in the world but a magic carpet, a magic lamp, a magic ring, and a grotto full of assorted jewels. Came up the hard way, did he? said Rincewind. Canina spread the carpet on the floor. It had a complex pattern of golden dragons on a blue background. They were extremely complicated dragons, with long beards, ears and wings, and they seemed to be frozen in motion, caught in the transition from one state to another, suggesting that the loom which wove them had rather more dimensions than the usual three. But the worst thing about it was that if you looked at it long enough, the pattern became blue dragons on a gold background, and a terrible feeling stole over you that if you kept on trying to see both types of dragon at once, your brains would trickle out of your ears. Rincewind tore his gaze away with some difficulty as another distant explosion rocked the building. How does it work? he said. Creosote shrugged. I've never used it, he said. I suppose you just say up and down and things like that. How about fly through the wall? said Rincewind. All three of them looked up at the high, dark and above all solid walls of the room. We could try sitting on it and saying, Roy's... Nigel volunteered, and then before we hit the roof we could say, well, stop. He considered this for a bit and then added, if that's the word. Or drop, said Rincewind, or descend, dive, fall, sink, or plunge. Plummet, suggested Canina gloomily. Of course, said Nigel, with all this wild magic floating around, 
you could try using some of it. Ah, said Rincewind, and, well. You've got wizard written on your hat, said Creosote. Anyone can write things on their hat, said Kanina. You don't want to believe everything you read. Now hold on a minute, said Rincewind hotly. They held on a minute. They held on for a further seventeen seconds. Look, it's a lot harder than you think, he said. What did I tell you, said Kanina. Come on, let's dig the mortar out with our fingernails. Rincewind waved her into silence, removed his hat, pointedly blew the dust off the star, put the hat on again, adjusted the brim, rolled up his sleeves, flexed his fingers, and panicked. In default of anything better to do, he leaned against the stone. It was vibrating. It wasn't that it was being shaken, it felt that the throbbing was coming from inside the wall. It was very much the same sort of trembling that he had felt back at the university just before the sorcerer had arrived. The stone was definitely very unhappy about something. He sidled along the wall and put his ear to the next stone, which was a smaller, wedge-shaped stone cut to fit an angle of the wall. Not a big, distinguished stone, but a bantam stone, patiently doing its bit for the greater good of the wall as a whole. It was also shaking. "'Shush!' said Canina. "'I can't hear anything,' said Nigel loudly. Nigel was one of those people who, if you say, "'Don't look now,' would immediately swivel his head like an owl on a term-table.' These are the same sort of people who, when you point out, say, an unusual crocus just beside them, turn around aimlessly and put their foot down with a sad little squashy noise. If they were lost in a trackless desert, you could find them by putting down somewhere on the sand something small and fragile, like a valuable old mug that has been in your family for generations, and then hurrying back as soon as you heard the crash. Anyway, that's the point. What happened to the war? A little cascade of mortar poured down from the ceiling onto Rincewind's hat. Something's acting on the stones, he said quietly. They're trying to break free. We're right underneath quite a lot of them, observed Creosote. There was a grinding noise above them, and a shaft of daylight lanced down. To Rincewind's surprise, it wasn't accompanied by sudden death from crushing. There was another silicon creak, and the hole grew. The stones were falling out, and they were falling up. I think, he said, that the carpet might be worth a try at this point. The wall beside him shook itself like a dog and drifted apart, its masonry giving Rincewind several severe blows as it soared away. The four of them landed on the blue and gold carpet in a storm of flying rock. We've got to get out of here, said Nigel, keeping up his reputation for acute observation. Hang on, said Rincewind. I'll say... You won't, snapped Canina, kneeling beside him. I'll say, I don't trust you, but you've... Shut up, said Canina. She patted the carpet. Carpet, rise, she commanded. There was a pause. Up. Perhaps it doesn't understand the language, said Nigel. Lift, levitate, fly. Or it could be, say, sensitive to one particular voice. Shut up. You tried up, said Nigel. Try ascend. Or saw, said Creosote. Several tons of flagstones swooped past an inch from his head. If it was going to answer to them, it would have done, wouldn't it, said Canina. The air around her was thick with dust as the flying stones ground together. She thumped the carpet. Take off, you blasted mat! Urgh! A piece of cornice clipped her shoulder. She rubbed the bruise irritably and turned to Rincewind, who was sitting with his knees under his chin and his hat pulled over his head. Why doesn't it work? she said. You're not saying the right words, he said. It doesn't understand the language. Language hasn't got anything to do with it. You've neglected something fundamental. Well? Well what? sniffed Rincewind. Look, this isn't time to stand on your dignity. You keep on trying, you don't mind me. Make it fly. Rincewind pulled his hat further over his ears. Please, said Canina. The hat rose a bit. We'd all be terribly bucked, said Nigel. Here, here, said Creosote. The hat rose some more. You're quite sure, said Rincewind. Yes. Rincewind cleared his throat. Down, he commanded. The carpet rose from the ground and hovered expectantly a few feet over the dust. 
did you... Canina began, but Nigel interrupted her. Wizards are privy to arcane knowledge. That's probably what it is, he said. Probably the carpet's got a gears on it to do the opposite of anything that's said. Can you make it go up further? Yes, but I'm not going to, said Rincewind. The carpet drifted slowly forward, and as happens so often at times like this, a rolling slab of masonry bounced right across the spot where it had lain. A moment later they were out in the open air, the storm of stone behind them. The palace was pulling itself to pieces, and the pieces were funnelling up into the air like a volcanic eruption in reverse. The sorcerous tower had completely disappeared, but the stones were dancing towards the spot where it had stood, and... "'They're building another tower,' said Nigel. "'Out of my palace, too,' said Creosote. "'The hat's one,' said Rincewind. "'That's why it's building its own tower. "'It's a sort of reaction. "'Wizards always used to build a tower around themselves, "'like those, uh, what do you call those things you find at the bottom of rivers? "'Frogs? Stones? Unsuccessful gangsters? "'Caddis flies is what I meant,' said Rincewind. "'When a wizard set out to fight, "'the first thing he always did was build a tower. "'It's very big,' said Nigel. "'Rincewind nodded glumly. "'Where are we going?' said Canina. Rincewind shrugged. Away, he said. The outer palace wall drifted just below them. As they passed over it began to shake and small bricks began to loop towards the storm of flying rock that buzzed around the new tower. Eventually Canina said, All right, how did you get the carpet to fly? Does it really do the opposite of what you command? No, I just paid attention to certain fundamental details of laminar and spatial arrangements. You've lost me there, she admitted. You wanted in non-wizard talk? Yes. You put it on the floor upside down, said Rincewind. Canina sat very still for a while. Then she said, I must say this is very comfortable. It's the first time I've ever flown on a carpet. It's the first time I've ever flown one, said Rincewind vaguely. You do it very well, she said. Thank you. You said you were frightened of heights. Terrified. You don't show it. I'm not thinking about it. Rincewind turned and looked at the tower behind them. It had grown quite a lot in the last minute, blossoming at the top into a complexity of turrets and battlements. A swarm of tiles was hovering over it, individual tiles swooping down and clinking into place like ceramic bees on a bombing run. It was impossibly high. The stones at the bottom would have been crushed if it wasn't for the magic that crackled through them. Well, that was just about it as far as organised wizardry was concerned. Two thousand years of peaceful magic had gone down the drain, the towers were going up again, and with all this raw magic floating around, something was going to get very seriously hurt. Probably the universe. Too much magic could wrap time and space around itself, and that wasn't good news for the kind of person who had grown used to things like effects following things like causes. And, of course, it would be impossible to explain things to his companions. They didn't seem to grasp ideas properly. More particularly, they didn't seem to be able to get the hang of doom. They suffered from the terrible delusion that something could be done. They seemed prepared to make the world the way they wanted it, or die in the attempt. And the trouble with dying in the attempt was that you died in the attempt. The whole point about the old university organisation was that it kept a sort of peace between wizards who got along with one another about as easily as cats in a sack. And now the gloves were off, anyone who tried to interfere was going to end up severely scratched. This wasn't the old, gentle, rather silly magic that the disc was used to. This was magic war, white-hot and searing. Rincewind wasn't very good at precognition. In fact, he could barely see into the present but he knew with weary certainty that at some point in the very near future, like thirty seconds or so, someone would say, Surely there's something we could do. The desert passed below them, lit by the low rays of the setting sun. There don't seem to be many stars, said Nigel. Perhaps they're scared to come out. Rincewind looked up. There was a silver haze high in the air. It's raw magic settling out of the atmosphere, he said. It's saturated. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. Surely there's something we... Canina began. There isn't, said Rincewind flatly, but with just the faintest twinge of satisfaction. The wizards will fight each other until there's one victor. There isn't anything else anyone can do. I could do with a drink, said Creosote. I suppose we couldn't stop somewhere where I could buy an inn. What with? said Nigel. You're poor, remember? Poor, I don't mind, said the seraph. 
It's sobriety that is giving me difficulties. Conina prodded Rincewind gently in the ribs. Are you steering this thing? she said. No. Then where is it going? Nigel peered downwards. By the look of it, he said, it's going hubwards towards the Circle Sea. Someone must be guiding it. Hello, said a friendly voice in Rincewind's head. You're not my conscience again, are you? thought Rincewind. I'm feeling really bad. Well, I'm sorry, Rincewind thought, but none of this is my fault. I'm just a victim of circuses. I don't see why I should take the blame. Yes, but you could do something about it. Like what? You could destroy the sorcerer. All this would collapse then. I wouldn't stand a chance. Then at least you could die in the attempt. That might be preferable to letting magical war break out. Oh, look, just shut up, will you? said Rincewind. What? said Canina. Um, said Rincewind vaguely. He looked down blankly at the blue and gold pattern underneath him and added, You're flying this, aren't you? Through me. That's sneaky. What are you talking about? Oh, sorry. Talking to myself. End of CD 5